You know, there's certain objects from each of our histories, each of our pasts, that can generate feelings of nostalgia. Uh, if you look at the images up on the screen here, some of you might find it hard to believe that TVs at one time were a major piece of furniture. Uh, some of them could l stretch the length of a buffet table uh, with a little screen in the middle that at nighttime it would turn into these bars of color and, and would no longer light up our, our rooms with, with activity. And if you wake up and you see those bars and hear that tune, you know it's time to go to bed. Uh, in the middle there, you see a child's first iPad, right? Uh, these would hang maybe over the side of a child's crib to get them to play in there a little bit longer, uh, to give their mothers a break. Some of you that are in the Gen Z, you might remember the VTech or the LeapFrog toys, you know, which uh, weren't digital at all. They actually had buttons that you had to physically push. How many remember the car cigarette lighter? Yeah, it used to be encouraged, actually, in your car. Anybody have scars from the car cigarette lighter as a, um, as, as a curious child? Ooh, what's that red glowing thing? My, my wife's sister actually decided she would see what it is by touching it to her tongue. Yeah, you know. Personal responsibility, that's what that taught there, folks. Or the rotary telephone that was similar to actually trying to open up a safe. You know, on that third number, if you got it wrong, you'd be like, ah, oh, I'm going to have arthritis from this. You know, having to rotate the entire thing. Or uh, who can forget the school desk? Uh, how many of you uh, were trained to protect yourself from a nuclear holocaust by hiding under your school desk? Yes, not quite sure how that worked. So we all have objects or stories that bring about feelings of nostalgia, take us back. For the Jewish people, the person of Abraham was very close to their hearts. He was the one that God spoke into history and spoke into his life and said, I am going to make a people out of you. And I'm going to take you to a land where you're going to be surrounded by the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Parasites. No, that wasn't one of them. But, and, but I'm going to make you a people there even as you're surrounded by them. And one day you're going to take their land from them. The event that we look at this morning resonates not just with Jewish believers but with the hearts of all believers. Because it represents salvation by faith, as salvation has always been available to those who walk with God by faith. It resonates because even 2,000 years before the coming of Christ, it teaches about the gift of a relationship with God. And that's what we look at here this morning. If you remember last week, it was kind of a history lesson more so. Uh, chapter 13, which we looked at, I'm sorry, 14, which we looked at last week. You might have noticed this, but God 
It's the only chapter involved with Abraham where God does not speak into it. And we came away from it, and, and uh, we didn't get out of the driveway before Kelly said, that was a dry one, J.D. I said, I know, it was kind of a history lesson more than anything. It was about Abraham and how his nephew Lot had been abducted. His nephew Lot had been abducted by these five kings that had come um, from the east and had ransacked the area of Canaan around the Dead Sea and the, the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. And now Abraham went and with God's blessing was able to rout and destroy the armies or at least defeat the armies of these five kings and, and rescue back his nephew Lot and all of the spoil and everything. And then he met up with Melchizedek and all of that. Abraham, at this point, would have been concerned I believe, of retaliation. This danger that he had experienced would have had him wonder, what would have happened to my estate? What would have happened to my loved ones if I had not survived this battle with these five kings and their armies? And it's no surprise that God needed to tell Abraham, fear not. And so we pick up in chapter 15 of Genesis where we read, and this is a very specific thing that it tells us, relating it to what went on, described in chapter 14, as I've described. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Recall that the king of Sodom basically treated Abram like a mercenary and said, okay, you know what? You can keep all the spoil. Just let me have my citizens back. But Abram had refused that reward from him. And what does God tell him here? I, your reward, shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? What is my reward? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Culturally, Abram knew that things were set up, that if he had died in this battle, everything that he had would have gone to Eliezer, his servant. To be to fear not, God tells him, do not be afraid. Do you realize that this is the most common command of Scripture? Spoken over 200 times. Do not be afraid. Fear not. And it's the most common command of our Savior, Jesus, to his disciples as well. Fear not. And we read in verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So God speaks with greater specifics, explaining the promised heir will be promising him he will be your very own son, Abram. And up to this point, here now, waiting at least 10 years since the original promise with a barren wife who is unable to have children, Abram wonders, how is this going to happen? 
God responds to Abram's fear with the promise of his provision. Abram is told that the promised offspring would be his very own son. And in response to Abram asking for assurance, the God of the universe, he points to the stars. And he promises to blow Abraham's expectations of blessing by providing countless descendants. And then we'll see that God credits righteousness to Abraham by his grace in response to Abram's trust. God is always drawing Abram back to reality. You see, reality isn't what we see going on around us. Reality is what God is doing amidst everything going on around us. Reality is not what you see going on around you. True reality is what God is doing amidst everything you see going on around you. One writer says, your life is only as big as your faith. And your faith is only as big as your God. If you spend all your time looking at yourself, you will get discouraged. But if you spend, but if you look to God by faith, you will be encouraged. And so we read what I mentioned before in verse 5. And he, God, brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then we have a commentary here. And he, being Abram, believed the Lord. And God counted it to him as righteousness. God is vision casting with Abram here. And so a part of what we read, as I mentioned, this, this, this historical event resonates with believers even, and, and it resonates and defines what a relationship with God is about even 2,000 years prior to the coming of Christ. And so for that reason, I challenge you, receive relationship with God by faith, just as Abram did. It said he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness, meaning God counted it to Abram as righteousness. When we speak about a relationship with God, we are talking about eternal salvation. We are talking about being saved from the penalty of our sins. And you might be asking, J.D., why are we talking about New Testament salvation, gospel salvation, when we're studying Genesis 15? Well, verse 6 shows us that God's methods of salvation has always been the same. Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. One writer says this is John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And, And in four places in the New Testament, this passage is referred back to to explain how salvation has always been by faith. And I would argue faith in the coming Messiah. Faith in the anointed one that Eve was told 
that one day her offspring would, cr- would crush the head of God's enemy, the serpent. And I believe that Abram, looking to that, put his faith in the fact that that was going to come, that God was going to bring him, and he was going to do so in a way that he had promised would be through Abraham, as we will review in a little bit here. But Paul uses this verse, as I mentioned, this is quoted four times in the New Testament. He explains how Abraham was saved by faith rather than as a result of his works. Where he writes in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Quoting here Genesis 15, 6. Then he goes on to say, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not as what is due, but as a gift. That's why I say receive relationship with God. With, uh, by faith. Receive that gift by faith. And Paul continues in chapter 4, quoting this again in verses 20 through 25, talking about how Abraham is a champion of faith in God. He says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness but the words it was counted to him paul continues were not written for his sake alone but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification let's say an attorney shows up on your front step rings your doorbell And he has for you a check, a check for an inheritance for an uncle that you didn't even know the uncle even thought about you, didn't even, wasn't even aware of where you lived. But it turns out that uncle has left all of his estate to you. And that attorney has that check for you. And that check just kind of sits there on your dresser and you're like, I don't know what to do with this thing. Well, what are you supposed to do with a check? You're supposed to take it down to the bank, sign it, and deposit it. So you finally decide to go and deposit that, and you're excited to see when you check your account balance and you see that money was accounted. It was counted to me. That is the term used here. It's a... It's a, a, it's a um, Accounting term. That's why we call it accounting. For that money to be accredited, it to be credited, that righteousness to be credited to Abraham's account. In the same way that in trusting Christ as our Savior, through faith, the same way as Abraham did, his Christ's righteousness then is credited to our account, just as righteousness was credited to Abraham's account. It was righteousness was counted to him. Abram had faith in God's promise of relationship. He took it to the bank, if you will. 
And God credited righteousness to Abram's account. And Galatians 3 tells us all, it tells us that all of us who are of faith in Christ, we are actually spiritually of those descendants of Abram, which God told him to look up to the stars and see. And if you remember that Rich Mullins song, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. He was a stranger in this land. And I am that no less than he. Galatians tells us that we can take it to the bank. That by having faith in Christ, we are descendants of Abraham. As we read in Galatians 3 verses 5 through 9. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him. As righteousness. Again, quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. He continues, You know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that being us, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. As we've seen before, and, and as I've quoted this before, God was, as, as Paul puts it, preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he said to him in his original covenant promise, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I believe and I teach that in Understanding that, how it was that Abram had, that God was preaching the gospel to him, is that Abram made the connection that through him would come the special descendant that Eve was promised would one day crush the head of the serpent, and thereby all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham was not just saved by faith, but I believe the object of his faith was the coming Messiah, the Christ, whom we know as Jesus. What is the object? When I talk about the object of his faith, well, think about if you're going to make an investment, all right? Let's say you're, you're going to invest in gold, or you're going to invest in real estate, or you're going to invest in a certain stock. You're trying to choose what object you're going to trust to pay back on your investment. It's the object of your investment. It's the object of your trust, if you will. And that advisor might be the person that you are placing some trust in for them to provide with you the right object of your investment. God is the person who are, we are trusting in advising us for salvation, and Jesus' person and work is the object of our trust. It is the object. He is the object of our faith. And it's the same for Old Testament saints. Saved by looking toward the coming Savior for their salvation. This being proclaimed to Abram as Galatians calls it. God preaching the gospel to Abram when he tells him. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Or as Paul put it. God preached the gospel beforehand. To Abram with this promise. 
Genesis 15, 6 describes salvation, a relationship with God. And what it has existed is throughout biblical history. As we see, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And, and as you heard me probably before quoting Romans 3, 25 through 26, talking about how is it that these Old Testament saints, though, as sinners, were able to be in relationship with God if Jesus had not been sacrificed yet, if that final sacrifice had not been made to pay for their sins? Well, Romans 3, 25 through 26 explains this for us. And I'll read it from the New Living Translation because it avoids that $10 word propitiation. We read, people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punished, punish those who sinned in times past. For he, God, was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So he says he was looking ahead. He, he did not punish those sins of these Old Testament saints that were looking ahead, putting their faith in the coming Messiah. He did not punish their sins, for he was looking ahead, including them, in what he would do in the present time. And the present time of, of this writing was the sacrifice of Jesus for sins. In the same way that we look back on that sacrifice of Christ for the payment of the penalty of our sins. Abraham, I believe, was looking ahead to the coming anointed one who he had by faith known that was going to be of his descendants because God had promised that through Abram and his descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. One writer says, On the cross our sins were put on Jesus' account when he suffered the punishment that belonged to us. When you trust him, his righteousness is put on your account and you stand righteous and forgiven before a holy God. That is just as much true of Abram as it is for any of us. So we continue in chapter 15. And he said to them, I am the Lord you, who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and, young, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. So meaning Abraham cut them across the belly and separated them and made a path, if you will, a gruesome path between these pieces of animals, except for the birds. It says, um, 
lost my place here. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is what is known as a cutting covenant. The Hebrew term for covenant actually means to cut. And both uh, typically in a cutting covenant... When when two people, two entities are going to make a covenant together, the reason why they would do this is they would set these animals as so, and they would both walk between these animals, down this path. And, And it is to say, if one of us should break this agreement, may they become like these animals. Now, a contract, as we've talked about before, A contract is saying, if you break your side, I can break mine. And that's why we don't talk about marriage contracts. We talk about marriage covenants. Because a covenant is saying, if you break your side, I am still responsible for my side. But just a warning, this is between you and God. This is going to happen to you. And in a cutting covenant, the happen to you is like, may I, if I break this, May what happened to these animals happen to me. And and we've seen the structure of what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. We've seen the bulk, the promises begin uh, in their larger pictures began in chapter 12. And here we see the ceremony, the the showing, the the display of the covenant. What they do, the, the inauguration, if you will. In chapter 17, we're going to see the sign of the covenant that would be carried forward. And that would be circumcision. Okay, that'll be in two weeks. Prior to that, Pastor Jeff is going to deal with chapter 16. So if you want to understand uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict from practically the, the beginning of when it started, come out next week for chapter 16. It's fascinating. But anyways, we continue on here with chapter 15, with verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. So he's been chasing off these birds all day long. All right? And uh, and behold, so a deep sleep falls over him. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be... and they." And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. This does not sound like good news. This is obviously their enslavement. Israel's enslavement in Egypt. But what would Egypt become for the children of Israel? An incubator. They would go down as 70 people and come out as 3 million. So continuing on in verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And we know that Abram lived to be 175 years old. He's assured that he, his life will be protected. And he continues on in verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God explains to Abram 
how his timing, God's timing, is beyond Abram's expectations. God has a plan for Abram's descendants, and that plan is that they will be removed, and then they will come back in power, in numbers, with wealth, and remove the inhabitants of the land once the, the evil of the inhabitants has come to perfect fruition. We continue on in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I I give this land from the river of Egypt, that being the Nile, to to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites, the Perizzites and Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. All of these are people of power. And God is promising this land, it doesn't matter who it belongs to, it will belong to Israel. This region described here has actually never been possessed by the nation of Israel in the sense of having driven out its inhabitants and set up their tents there. These territories had been conquered at one point under the reign of Solomon, and they were giving tribute to Solomon and to Israel, but they, Israel has never lived in these lands and owning it. One day Jesus will personally, physically reign from this land, I believe. But there's something very important for us to pick up about a relationship with God. And it's to recognize that God's grace is one-sided. You might be interested to see where we, where we see this here. So, so God has told Abram to set up these animals. And, and Abram is, I think he's getting a little bit nervous here. Because he recognizes what this ceremony is. This cutting covenant. He's looking at these animals and he's thinking, I don't want to end up like one of these. But what, would he, what do we see happen? Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, if you recall, I said that both parties of the covenant would walk down this path between these gruesome sights. But instead of seeing that, we see symbols of God's presence. Pass down this path, God alone walking the path and leaving Abram out of it. Not leaving Abram out of it in the sense of that he's not going to get the benefits of it, but he's not taking the risk. This is unilateral. It is a unilateral covenant rather than bilateral. It is a covenant in which only one party is obligated to perform according to it. And by passing down the path of the covenant by himself, God declared that the covenant was dependent on him alone and thus unconditional. Understand something about God, okay? God's love is unconditional. It is agape love. He loves us no matter who we are or what we've done. God's grace is not unconditional. God's grace is very conditional. 
And the condition of God's grace that must be fulfilled is faith. We are saved by grace through faith. We have seen how Abram had faith and therefore it was counted to him as righteousness. What we see here is grace. Grace mating the condition of faith. God's grace is unilateral. Meaning God is the only person that initiates the relationship. He is the only person that is fulfilling that relationship. He is the person that is flooding his grace into the relationship in response to saving faith. And the fact that the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant that we live under, that we spent the whole book of Hebrews understanding, they are unilateral. They are by grace. God foretold of the time of Abram's descendants that they would be in Egypt becoming a great nation. And he gives the promised land to Abraham's descendants here. It's a done deal. You know, I received a check in the mail. Well, it looked like a check. It, actually, it was actually a contract. And, and, and if you ever receive these, you know, you always got to read the fine print. Okay, so I flip, I'm looking at this and I'm like, what is this? Now I flip it over and it's got a spot for you to endorse it. But you're actually not endorsing a check, you're signing a contract. It says at the bottom of it, by signing this and depositing it, you are agreeing to the terms of this agreement. What a bunch of crooks. You know, or you get, you know, from your credit card company, you get this, like, you open up this, it looks like it's a credit card statement or something like that, and it's all these checks just floating out. It's like, just write this check. And it's a check, it's a cash advance, Right? This is different uh, than if I received, say, a birthday check from my parents in the mail, you know. I, I know that I can sign the back of that thing, take it down, the, down to the bank. I can trust what that is about. It's, it's not based, it's a unilateral gift. It is a gift. By the, by the fact that it is a gift, it is unilateral. Salvation is a gift by grace. Just as God is showing originally in this covenant with Abram, this is a gift from me to you. The condition is faith. Just like you gotta, you gotta put that check in the bank if you want it counted to your account. But the unilateral gift is grace. You do not need to do anything to earn that. Now, I don't call my parents up and say, hey, great, thank you for this money. What do I need to do? Like, okay, I, is this like a, you know, pay in advance? You know, I need to come down there and power wash your house or something like that? No, it's a unilateral gift. It's grace. This unilateral covenant relationship does not mean a relationship that makes no difference in your life. Okay? If you, if you recall, I said the, this verse 15, verse 6, Genesis 15, verse 6, is quoted four times in the New Testament, and I quoted three of them. Two in Romans 4 and one in Galatians 3. But there's one more in James 2. And James is explaining 
how this unilateral covenant, this grace relationship with God, does not mean it is a relationship, it is a grace that makes no difference in your life. James speaks to the person who thinks that being saved by grace means that you go on and live however you want. He references an event that we will study soon. That is when Abram obeyed God by offering up that promised son, Isaac. And James writes in James 2, 20 through 23, How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, you might be sitting here thinking, wait, J.D., he, he was credited with righteousness not when he offered Isaac on the altar. He was credited back here when God said, look up at the stars, and these are going to be all your descendants. And, and Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But, but notice what James says. Abram was shown to be right with God by his actions. It's not when he became righteous. It's when it show his righteousness Saving righteousness showed in his life. Or as it says later, it was fulfilled. James continues, you see his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scripture says. Scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So, meeting the condition of salvation, of having faith, receiving the unilateral gift of God, of His grace, being having Christ's righteousness counted to our account does not mean so what does it matter how you live your life? Because as James tells us, faith without good deeds is useless. It's a faith that doesn't work very well. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you so much for your eternal plan. Lord, we, we see the themes of salvation stretching over thousands of years of your writing. Here, 2,000 years before you would ever bring that Redeemer and lay our sins on him. You were proclaiming the same message. Here through 66 different pieces of literature, through 40-some authors speaking through their personality and their pen, you tell of your same story of redeeming a people for yourself by grace through faith. And all of us, no matter what side of the cross we were born on, no matter if we were born in, in 2000 B.C. or 2000 A.D., Lord. We will stand before you, knowing Christ as our Savior, and proclaim your grace and live in it for eternity, 
thankful to our Messiah, our sacrifice for us, and thankful for the righteousness that you credited to our account. Lord, if anyone here has been thinking that it is their works that makes them righteous, that it is what they do or sitting in these chairs that makes you turn your eye and look to them with favor. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow them to repent of this pride and turn to you for salvation by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and be filled with your spirit and walk with you as your child. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.